Amen. Well, it's so good to see you all this morning. Thanks for coming to church. I know you got that turkey hangover from Thursday, but, but it's great to have you at church today. And I'm just praying that God would speak to us uh, through this message. I believe he's already moving through the, or through the worship, but I'm excited to dive into this. And if you're new today, I just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I hope I get a chance to meet you after service. We're just really glad that you take some time to check us out. So thanks for coming. And today we're kicking off the Christmas season. And Historically, the church has referred to this, or the, the capital C church, so global church, has referred to this season as Advent, and Advent just means coming. So it's a time where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, and not just the first coming in the Christmas story, but also we look forward to his second coming when he will come back and return to save us. So uh, the idea of the Advent season is we want to kind of stir our hearts in a spirit of expectation, a spirit of waiting on God to come through, just like those ancient Israelites did up until the time that Jesus came the first time. They um, hadn't heard from God for, for hundreds of years. They were praying for a Messiah to come and rescue them. And then at just the right time, Jesus was born as a little baby boy in Bethlehem and came to save them. And, and it, it proved that God is a keeper of his promises. That's what that first Christmas proved. Even after hundreds of years of prophetic silence where God wasn't speaking to them, God showed them, I have not forgotten about you and I keep my promises. So I'm praying during this Christmas season, during this Advent season, that our hearts would be stirred to wait on God, to pray for him to move in our midst, and that God would fulfill some, or some of his promises to us specifically. So maybe there's things that God has promised you, things that God has revealed to you for your life, and I'm praying that this season would kind of stir your faith, that God can come through on those promises, and, that, and I pray that God would even do that during this season. So that's kind of the heart of the Advent season, just this, this idea of getting our hearts in a posture of waiting on God and watching God fulfill his promises. And, and as this happens, I'm praying that this season would be a season where we are, are filled with awe and wonder at the goodness and beauty of God. We just kind of want to take a few weeks just to look at who God is and, and allow him to stir our hearts. That's the, the heart behind this uh, series that we're jumping into. So with that said, I'm excited to be kicking off this brand new series today. And as I prayed about the Christmas season, I've as I've considered what God would have for our church, I just kept feeling my heart drawn to this idea of, of wonder. It's no secret that 2020 and 2021, which for some reason to me, it feels like one big long year, but these two years have been difficult years for the world between COVID-19, between the political division, between every other crazy thing that's happened in the world. And on top of this, we each have our own individual struggles. You have things that you're going through. If you're a human being, there's something you have to be going through at any given time. And, and maybe for you, you've been in a tough spot mentally or, or emotionally this year. Maybe it's been a hard year in that realm. Or maybe for you, you have had a tough time with some relationships. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you're, or there's a family relationship that's on the rocks and it's been hard in that way. Or maybe you've lost a loved one this year. You know, for me personally, just speaking personally, I lost a loved one to COVID-19. So in some ways, uh, or this year has been particularly heavy for my family. And for many of us, it's, it hasn't been a time of being filled with awe and wonder at the beauty of God. These last years just haven't been that. It's been more of a time of just trying to get through, just trying to get through to the next day, kind of always wondering, when is all this stuff going to end? When is COVID going to end? When are the lockdowns going to end? Which I know we're pretty much all out of that stuff. But, but the question is, when is it going to end? When are we going to get through to the other side? It's been a time where we're more tempted than ever to focus on our problems instead of focusing on God. We've been really looking at the stuff in front of us instead of looking at God. We've been kind of getting our eyes fixed on the mountain in front of us instead of the God who can move the mountain. And I believe that the Christmas story 
is uniquely equipped to help us get our eyes off our problems or get our eyes off our mountains and instead get our eyes on God. The story tells us that, that while the world was dark, God came to bring light. After 400 years, again, a prophetic silence, God spoke in a big way through sending his own son, Jesus, to save us. It tells us that after spending eternity with God the Father and God the Spirit, God the Son came into our world to make war against the enemy and free us from the devil's house. It's the kind of story that can drive us to awe and wonder at the beauty, majesty, and love of God. It's the kind of story that if we can really get ourselves immersed in it, which takes some work. It takes some work to really consider the story. It takes some work to get yourself immersed in it. But if we can get ourselves immersed in this story, it can deposit the wonder of a child back into our hearts. You know that feeling when you were younger, when you were maybe five or six, just that, you know, that spirit of childlike faith, that spirit of wonder. This story can help deposit that spirit into us. It can help us to, or to believe again that, or that or that nothing is impossible, that God is a God who comes through, that he's strong. It can help us to believe that even in the midst of all the evil and the struggles in the world, the world and God are truly beautiful. It's that kind of story. So with that said, we're going to take a few weeks to just walk through the Christmas story and ask God, as we're walking through it, just ask God to fill us with wonder again. And we're going to start right at the beginning of the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Matthew 1. And if you do have a paper Bible, it would be great if you turn there because I think it will help you. So Matthew chapter 1, or if you have your phone, whatever, but, but go ahead and turn to it. If you've ever tried to read through the New Testament, it's likely that you got off to a bumpy start if you started at the very beginning. I love it when people are excited, like they come to church, they're like, hey, I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm excited. Then they get home, they're like, yes, this is going to be amazing. God's going to speak to me. And then you get to Matthew chapter one, and you're like, what in the world is this? Is this how the whole Bible is? Because it starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, and you're like, what is this? I didn't sign up for this. I thought God was going to be speaking to me in some big way. So it's, it's likely that if you started reading the New Testament in this way that you got off to a bumpy start as the first part is Jesus' genealogy. And as a modern person, it's easy to think that this genealogy is just a waste of time. It's easy to think it's insignificant and just want to skip past it. It's easy to lose patience with it. It's important, though, as we dive into the Christmas story that, that we don't miss the significance of this genealogy. You see, we live in a, in a very individualistic culture where we have to recommend ourselves to others through our accomplishments or degrees or experiences. And we need to remember that Jesus, he didn't live in a culture like ours. He lived in a, a communal, family-oriented culture where family history was the equivalent of a modern resume. Okay, so this is almost like Jesus' resume. That's why Matthew is putting this genealogy at the very front of the gospel. He's saying, hey, Jesus comes from some good stuff, and there's also some bad stuff in there. We'll look at it, but, but let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 6, and then I'm going to read 16 and 17. I won't read the whole thing. That's more for my sake and also for your sake. I won't read the whole thing, but let's uh, read these few verses. So it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, or the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Saman. This is really getting good, isn't it? And Saman the father of Boaz by 
or by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, it's not even his own wife, and Jacob, the, well, it becomes his wife, but in, in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ, that's the word Christus in the or Christos in the Greek, which means Messiah or King. So all the generations from Abraham to David, uh, or 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Man, that's a good word today. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so the, uh, the sermon title is The Wonder of Grace. If you're taking notes, I'm going to pray for us as you're writing that down. So Jesus, we thank you so much for the genealogy. And I pray this morning that it would speak to us, God, that, that it would affect us in the same way that it affected those first readers who read it. God, I pray that, that your word would come alive to us this morning and that this would be an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of us are spending time with extended family during this holiday season. Maybe you spent some time with some ex- extended family over Thanksgiving. And does anyone have like some or some strange characters in your extended family, like just some weird people, or maybe you don't think you do, but that means it's probably you. But uh, our family, my family, definitely has some strange but lovable characters. For example, growing up, the main place that I remember interacting with my grandpa was at the prison he was in. And we would go to visit him at least once a year. It was like our family vacation. We would go to prison, and we'd also do a few other things in the town, but, but essentially it's where we'd go on trips. And I remember... Uh, we would go to visit him like once a year, and, and my favorite part was playing, or playing checkers with him in the visiting area, or checkers with him in the visiting area. And I was only around five years old during this season, uh, is around that time. And going into these games, I always fooled myself into thinking that he would go easy on me. I, I was thinking, my prison grandpa, he's going to go easy on me in checkers, but he never would. I guess he was in prison for a reason, I don't know, but he literally destroyed me every time. He didn't even let me get close. He'd be like, you know, quadruple hopping all the way to victory. And after he got out of prison, he, he became even more strange, I feel like. He uh, asked my older brother, Mark, to come and help him with something in his new yard. So he's got his new house. He's out of prison. He's excited. He, he wants to get his yard flatter. So he, he asked my brother to come over and help him. He has no tractor, no lawnmower, nothing to pull it, but just says, hey, Mark, will you pull that around the or pulled around the yard, which I don't know if you know, but that looks pretty heavy, right? So I don't know who would be able to pull that. But Mark, he, he sure tried to pull it around with his bare hands, but you're supposed to have a tractor to pull it. But my grandpa, again, he's, he went to prison. He's a crazy, tough guy. And he just didn't get it. Why can't you pull this? I could pull it when I was your age. But the point is, my grandpa was a strange character, and I'm sure you all have your own stories of your weird family members. And one of the things I love about the fact that, that Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy is it shows us that Jesus was a real human in space and time. He's a real human. The, the Gospels aren't like a book of advice of how to live a good life. That's not what it is. It's like a story of, of what actually happened. God himself came and he died for the sins of the world and he, and he, was, and he, and he was risen again. He was a real person. I, I'm sure that Jesus had crazy relatives just like you and I. You know, maybe he had a grandpa who destroyed him in checkers or he had to go to a weird uncle's house for, for uh, Thanksgiving. You know, I'm sure he had weird family members. And, and one of the things you'll notice about Jesus' uh, genealogy, if you know the Old Testament, is it's actually quite impressive and compelling. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that it would have been like a drum roll to the original audience because of how impressive it was. You know, most Jews, they would begin with Father Abraham, just like you know, uh, Matthew does here, but only a select few would trace their line through King David. 
Even fewer would go through King Solomon and the other kings of Judah. At this point in Israel's history, they, they no longer had a king from David's line, but were ruled by a Roman puppet king named Herod, which we'll probably read about here in a few weeks. And he was only a half Jew. He wasn't really a true Jew that was from the line of King David. And within Israel, there was this expectation that God was going to send a Messiah from David's line to, or to rescue Israel from Rome's oppression and deliver them from their sin. And for Matthew to say that Jesus came from King David's line would have been a provocative statement to say the least. But despite the impressiveness of his genealogy, there are some very unlikely characters in this list. According to Pastor Tim Keller, ancient people would often try to clean up their genealogies, just like we do with our resumes, right? We try to clean them up. But you know, if you had a bad ending with the job, you probably don't put it on the resume. In the same way, if there's a shady character in the, in the family line, you just kind of leave them out. But for some reason, Matthew doesn't do that for Jesus. He includes characters that you probably wouldn't want in your genealogy. And specifically, Matthew includes five women, and women weren't typically included in genealogies. And I'm not saying women, like women are great, right? But in this culture, they weren't typically included. So that was kind of provocative in itself. But what's more intriguing about this is Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They're not just women, but, but they're Gentiles. And to the Jews, they were from unclean nations. And they wouldn't have been allowed to even worship in the temple. They were racial outsiders, and yet Matthew includes them in the genealogy. And what's even more surprising than this, so they're women, they're racial outsiders, what's even more surprising is these women were a part of some of the most terrible stories of the Old Testament. Tamar committed incest and broke God's law by sleeping with her father-in-law, Judah, and yet Jesus came from their child, Perez. And Matthew also tells us that Jesus descended from, from Uriah, the, Hitt, or the Hittite's wife, and he, and he calls, her, or calls her his wife because David helped Bathsheba, which is her actual name, cheat on Uriah and had him killed so he could marry her and cover it up. And Jesus ended up coming through their son Solomon. In a way, Jesus is a child of incest and adultery. Matthew is telling us that Jesus comes from moral outsiders. And he also comes from, from racial outsiders. Even though ancient Israel excluded them from the presence of God, they are publicly acknowledged here as the mothers and fathers of Jesus. This is a big deal. This shows us that God uses people who we wouldn't think he would use. He gives extravagant grace to those who least deserve it and least expect it. God gives extravagant grace to those who least deserve it and least expect it. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this. I, I love this verse. It says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If you come in here this morning and you think that you are too weak for God to use, or that you come from the wrong family, or that you have too messed up of a past, the genealogy of Jesus tells you otherwise. The mothers and fathers of Jesus were weak. They came from the wrong families, and they made mistakes. Even the great ones like David and Judah made big mistakes. And yet God used their mistakes for his glory. God used, his, or he used their mistakes in his grand story. We see this clearly in Rahab's story, who's one of the mothers of Jesus. 
that's listed here. Her story is given to us in the book of Joshua. So if you want to turn over there, it's in the Old Testament. It's also going to be on the screen. And for a little context, Israel had just been freed, well, had been freed from Egypt 40 years before this, and they wandered around the desert for 40 years looking for the promised land. In the beginning of Joshua, they're just about to finally enter the promised land, but before doing so, their leader, Joshua, who took over for Moses, he, he wanted to send some spies into the promised land to check things out, make sure everything is good, like, like they can go do their battle and all that stuff. And Rahab, who is a prostitute from the land, she ends up risking her own life to protect the spies. And we know from Jesus' genealogy that this prostitute ends up marrying a Jew named Salmon later on, and both King David and Jesus come from their line. But it all started here when she took a huge step of faith on behalf of the people of Israel. So let's take a look at it. Let's see, let's uh, take a look at Rahab's story. So chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 1 through 11. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight and search out the land. Then the king of Israel sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men, or the men who have come to you, who entered your, or who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they, or where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Okay, so Rahab, she was protecting these men at great personal risk to herself. She could have been killed for treason. Why would she do this? Like she was a Canaanite. Why would she put her neck out there for the people of Israel? Why? Well, it tells us in verse 9. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Okay, so she risked her life for these men because why? Because she feared their God. She had heard about the God of Israel. She heard that he had parted the Red Sea and saved Israel from the greatest empire in the world. And she feared this God more than she feared the authorities of her city. And later on in Joshua 6, when the city falls, Israel spares Rahab and her family. It says this, it says this in verse 22 of chapter 6. It says, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So her act of faith actually led to the salvation of her family. And so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brother and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in, 
Israel to this day. Why? Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. Okay, so this story, it's easy to kind of glaze over as you're reading it. I know it's a lot of words, and it's, it's worded kind of funny, but, but this story tells us a lot about God's grace. God decided to use Rahab, a moral and racial outsider, in his grand purposes. He opened her eyes and allowed her to see what he was doing so, so she could be a part of his great story by saving those spies. This tells us an important thing about God's grace. God's grace is for all kinds of people. It's for all types of people, people of, of every shape and size. God chose to use Rahab even though she didn't come from the right family, even though she didn't have the right background. He used her despite her weaknesses. If you came in here this morning and you're doubting if God's grace is for you, only look to Rahab over and over again. I feel like Joshua like, reminds us over and over again, hey, she was a prostitute, like Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was not a part of God's chosen people. And she was a woman in a patriarchal society. And yet God decided to call her to save those spies. This tells us that it doesn't matter what you've done or who your parents are. God's grace is for you. Even with that said, what was it about Rahab, though, that, that drew God to her? Because there was something about her that, that drew God to her, that, that caused God to wake her up and to include her in his story. Like, why was she chosen to save the spies, and, and why was she spared from God's wrath? Well, and surely God, he, he could have used anyone to protect the spies, right? But, but he used her. So I think the answer to that question is found in verse 9 through 11 of chapter 2. So it, in verse 9, she tells the Israelites that she knows that God is going to give them her land. She says, I know that God's going to give you the land. And it, Israel was not some mighty army. It, it wasn't like they were this amazing people. They're wandering around the desert for 40 years. But she had enough faith in their God that, that she knew that he was going to give them uh, the land. And, and she had heard stories of, the, of God's power and how her, her people's hearts melted at the stories. And then at the end of verse 11, though, she, she makes a profound statement. This is so important. Don't miss the gravity of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This was an audacious statement for a Canaanite woman to make. Her people, they worshiped other gods. Part of your national identity in this culture was the God you worshiped. You had, like, like most nations had their own God. And her people weren't God's chosen people. They weren't the people of Yahweh. And yet she confesses that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of the universe, not just the God of that nation, which was common for each nation to have their own God, like I said, but instead the God of the entire universe, the God over everything. By saying this, Rahab is telling the spies that her allegiance had changed from her childhood gods or her culture's gods to their God. She was changing sides. And she had realized the truth of Psalm 135. It says this in that psalm. It says, The idols of the nations or the gods of the nations are, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. And nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Okay, so she was done trusting in the dead gods of her ancestors. Instead, she was ready to throw all her hope into a God who could actually save. She wanted a God who could part the Red Sea with the sound of his voice. She wanted a God who could see what she was going through 
She wanted a God whose breath brought life to dead situations. She was saved because she trusted in God and confessed that he was the one true God. She was saved because her heart was tender enough to trust in someone other than herself. So if you're an American, which I think is probably all of us are close, it's, it's kind of wired in us to trust in ourselves, you know, kind of take care of yourself. It's hard for us to trust in someone other than ourselves, but, but her heart was tender enough to throw all her trust into Yahweh. She laid it all out there for him and trust that he would take care of her. So with that said, God's grace is for those who trust in him. God's grace is for those who trust in him. Those are the people that God saves, those who, who trust in him. So it's important to point out that, that for Rahab, she was only able to be saved from God's wrath because of her great, great, and I didn't do the math, but etc. grandson, Jesus, right? So what Jesus would eventually do is what made it possible for Gentiles to come into the family of God. His sacrifice and resurrection paid for her sin and removed the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Okay, so something we miss about the cross a lot of times, the cross is obviously about paying for our sins. That's what I talk about every week. But it's also about breaking down the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. When Jesus died on the cross, it made it where God's grace was not just available for Jews, but for everybody. It opened up the family of God to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this was the goal all along. The goal was that the Jews would be a light to the Gentiles and that they would welcome the Gentiles into the family of God. And Jesus was the one who finally made this possible by coming and living as the faithful Israelite who kept God's laws, who died for the sins of the world, and sent out a people to go and proclaim good news to the Gentiles. Rahab's story is like a signpost, right? In the middle of the Old Testament, that's pointing towards what Jesus would do for Gentiles. And her story points to what Paul says in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is groundbreaking. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So even though she was a prostitute, a woman, a racial outsider, her family was saved from Israel's invasion of Jericho. They got to join God's family, and her descendant went end up being the Messiah. The only way this was possible was the grace of God manifested through Jesus Christ. And that same grace that's available for Rahab or that was available for Rahab is available for you and for each of us today. Because of our sins, we were all born into this world spiritually dead. Like there's nothing you could do to make your heart come to life. You were spiritually dead when you were born. And we were separated from God. And Ephesians 2 goes so far to call us children of wrath. Okay, that's fun, right? Children of wrath, that's encouraging. Because of our sins, we can't be in God's presence. We can't do it on our own. But Ephesians 2 also tells us that God did not leave us that way. It says this in verse 4. It says, but God being what? Rich or full of mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we could bring nothing to the table. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't do it. God did it. It's a gift of God, 
It's, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Because of Jesus, we can be made alive together with Christ. We can be saved. If we trust in Jesus and his work on our behalf, we can be saved, forgiven, adopted into God's family, and invited into a new life, full stop. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how far you've fallen, what family you come from, or what natural weaknesses you have. Those who trust in God become children of God. Those who trust in God become co-heirs with Christ in the heavenly kingdom. This is good news. With that said, if you're here this morning and you're wondering what you have to do to be a part of God's family or what you have to do to experience God's grace, the answer is that you must trust. You must simply say yes to Jesus by throwing all your trust into him. You must turn from our culture's God's and the things that you're tempted to trust in and turn to the one true God. And one of the things I love about her story is that it shows us what it looks like to trust in God. So she didn't just say, I trust in God. Boom, I'm going to heaven. Amen, hallelujah, I'm done. No, she truly lived out her faith. It didn't just stop at her intellectually confessing that God was Lord or that Yahweh was Lord. She let it play out in her life. She let her faith come alive. Her faith in the God of Israel caused her to do the audacious act of hiding Israel's spies. Even as the king of Jericho had her question about it, she had a faith that was not limited to just doing a few religious activities. I assure you, she wasn't just concerned, okay, how many times I gotta go to church or what prayers do I have to pray to be saved? Instead, she let God be king in her entire life. She let him lead her life in such a way that she put her entire life on the line for Yahweh. And James, he said this when he reflected on Rahab's life later in the New Testament. It says this in verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, which means made right, by works when she received the, or the messengers and sent them out by another way. Okay, so this is a challenging verse. Is James saying that we're justified by works? Is that what he's saying? Well, he says justified by works. Well, in Romans 1 or not one, chapter five, verse one, Paul says we're justified by faith. Are they contradicting each other? Like I thought the New Testament was supposed to be consistent. Well, it's important to know that James and Paul were friends. Like, they were two of the three leaders of the early church, James, Paul, and Peter. They're like the three big dogs. They were friends. They, they co-labored for the gospel. And their teachings about justification are side by side in the New Testament so that I don't think they could be contradicting each other. If they were contradicting each other, the church leaders who put the Bible together would have noticed because that's one thing they looked at. They looked at, okay, the, is it consistent? And when they're, they're choosing which books are a part of scripture. Instead of contradicting each other, I think they mean different things when they say justified. You know, sometimes you can use the same word mean a little bit different thing. So when James is saying justified, he seems to be referring to the fact that we know that Rahab had true faith because her faith worked. It actually did something. He's saying that her faith was true or seen to be true because it actually led to action. In verse 17, he, he says this, so also faith by itself, so praying a prayer or just confessing that Jesus is Lord, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. It's not real is what he's saying. It's not real faith. You think it's faith, but it's not. Paul would agree that faith without works is dead. When he talks about how we receive salvation in Romans 10, I quote it almost every week, he makes sure to take it beyond just confessing with your lips 
that Jesus is Lord. And he also talks about believing in your heart. Okay, so it says in Romans 10, 9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and what? Believe in your heart. He didn't stop at confess. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Okay, so this idea of belief in your heart, it's this kind of belief that's like deep inside of you that overflows in your life. It's a faith that actually leads to work. So if you really believe something, especially this groundbreaking that Jesus came to die and, and he was risen again, it's going to change the way you live. So like when I first tried out raising canes, I loved it. It changed my life. I said, I'm going to tell everyone about it. That's a joke. But I mean, I do like raising canes, but the point is, I know I say that joke too much, so I'm just going to move on. But the point is when you believe something, when you truly believe it, it changes you. It changes the way you act. It's not just giving lip service to a prayer or some religious activity because you think it can get you into heaven. It's not just a verbal confession, but it's a faith that acts like what we see when Rahab hides the spice. That's what faith looks like. Like she stuck it all out there for Jesus, or not for Jesus, but, but for Yahweh. The only way you can have a faith like this is if you encounter God, if you truly know him. You can't muster up that kind of faith on your own. So I'm not telling you to go out from here and work harder and be like, I gotta show that my faith is real. No, God's grace awakens your heart to this kind of faith. It causes you to come alive and to live a life of this kind of faith. In verse five of Ephesians two, Paul says this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so you're dead, you bring nothing to, to the table, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So if you're dead, you can't make yourself come to life. The grace of God brings you to life. So salvation comes to us as God's grace and our faith work together in synergy. Grace through faith leads to salvation. It's not always clear where God's grace and our faith start and end, but they come together and it leads to salvation. He awakens our heart by his grace and we respond to his grace with faith. And this is what happened with Rahab. She had encountered the God of Israel and she responded in faith by not only confessing that he was Lord, but by going and hiding these spies. And ultimately she was saved from destruction as she did this. So the third point, the final point is God's grace. It changes those who trust in him. If you have truly encountered the God who parted the Red Sea, if you truly encounter the God that freed the Israelites from Egypt, if you've truly trusted in the Jesus who walked uh, the streets of Galilee in the first century, if you've truly encountered him, it's going to lead to action. Jesus, if, if, you, if you let him into your heart and your life, he's not going to be contained. He's not going to let you just be religious. It's going to cause you to change. It will cause you, God's grace, if you truly encounter it, it's going to cause you to let God into your house, just like Rahab did with these spies. He will come in. He'll rearrange the furniture a little bit. He's going to say, I'm going to move some stuff around. He's going to transform your life. True faith that's awakened by God's ferocious grace is not just praying a prayer. It is surrender. It's surrendering to the Lord in every area. That does not mean you're perfect. Hear me this morning. But it means you're going to transform year after year as you follow the Lord. If you've truly experienced grace through faith, it will lead to transformation. And it's important to remember, though, that your works are not an attempt to earn God's grace. I know I've said that, but I want to say it again. It's not an attempt to earn God's grace, but it's a response to his grace. So the gospel, the good news, is not, I obey, therefore I'm loved. Like, hey, I did good things. Like, like here's the thing. Your righteous deeds, the, the scriptures tell us that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. Okay, so it doesn't matter how many good things you do, it's not going to make you lovable, okay? Instead, 
the gospel is I am already loved, not because of anything I bring to the table, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And out of that, I obey. So because Jesus gave it all for me, because he proved his love for me on the cross, I obey as a response to that. The apostle John says, or said, we love because he first loved us. His love stirs up love in us. That's why we obey. We obey as a response. If you've truly trusted Jesus, if you've truly received his love and grace, it's going to mess you up. It's going to mess your life over. It's going to change you. It's going to make you into a new person. His love will get into you and it will rearrange your desires and your affections. His love will make your faith real. It's going to transform you from the inside out. You won't obey to earn anything or to get anything from God, but simply because you love him too. And Rahab's faith in the one true God, it, it caused her to do some, some crazy stuff, didn't it? It really did rearrange the furniture. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay, so she gave them the welcome because she had encountered God. With that said, we have to ask ourselves this morning if we've truly experienced God's grace in such a way that it changes us. And that's not just like, hear me, guys. This like this changing or transforming, it's not like something you gotta do. It's not like, oh, you gotta change. You better change, come on, like because God wants you to. No, it's like like you get the freedom to change. It's a gift. Transformation, becoming the person that God created you to be, it is a gift. It's the best Christmas gift you could ever get. It is a gift to transform. It's a gift to be the, the true person you're supposed to be when God wired you in your mother's womb. It's a gift to transform. So the question this morning is, at, or have you experienced his grace in such a way that it's changed you? And if it's not, I'm not, or if it hasn't happened, I'm not asking you to go work harder. I'm just asking you to experience God's grace anew and experience it afresh. This morning, ask yourself, have I truly let God come in and live in my heart? Have I truly let him live in my house? Have I let him rearrange the furniture? Ask that question. And if the answer is no, all the Lord is asking you to do today is to turn to him again and say, God, baptize me in your love. Fill me with your love. Give me your grace. Lord, I want to experience your grace today. He's not waiting for you to clean up your life. He's not waiting for you to have it all together. He's not asking you to be perfect. Newsflash, none of us are perfect, nor will we ever be on this side of eternity. But he's asking for your heart. He does want your heart. And what's that look like? Well, to give God your heart, it actually looks like Rahab's story. Like, like the God of Israel clearly won Rahab's heart. And it wasn't even about achieving moral perfection. Now, hear me, God wants us to grow in our holiness. So I'm not saying don't try to be moral. Don't try to grow in that. But, but for Rahab, that wasn't what she was focused on. You actually see... It's really interesting. In trying to save the Israelites, she actually lied, which is a sin. Okay, it's not like, hey, for Rahab, it's not a sin. No, it was a sin. She should not have lied. And yet God's grace covered that too. His grace covered her because why? Because she was his, because he had her heart. He knew he had her heart because she had surrendered to his leadership. She had given him the keys to her life and trusted him with her well-being so much so that she was literally trusting him with her physical life. She was putting her life on the line for God. So again, we know that she was submitted to his leadership because it changed the way that she lived her life. It, it changed the direction she was going. Even though she grew up with different gods and she could have died for hiding those spies, she threw it all aside and she threw herself into God. So this morning, if your faith has not led to change, it's time to experience his grace in such a deep way that it messes with you. It's time to be filled with wonder at the grace of God in such a way that it just changes you. Just as Rahab did, throw yourself at the good feet of Jesus. 
You can trust him. Being in the palm of Jesus' hands is a good place to be. He's a trustworthy, good God. And we see like who Jesus was in the gospels. Like this is the kind of guy you can trust. He's full of love, full of mercy. This morning, throw yourself at his feet and truly give him your heart just as Rahab did. And as you do, you're gonna change. You're gonna transform. You're gonna obey better than you did before. So, yeah, so with that said, uh, the main idea today is this, the grace of God that both saves, hear this, both saves and changes us should stir us to awe and wonder. This Christmas season, that's God's heart for us. It, not that we would try to earn anything, not that we'd work harder. Yeah, yeah we obey God, do all those things. But, but instead, I just believe he, he's asking us to be stirred by the fact that, wow, God loves me. Even after everything I've done, God loves me. And he doesn't just love me enough to forgive me, but he also loves me enough to give me the power to change. Who is this God? That's the question I want to ask. Like, who is a God that would love us like that? And let that drive you to wonder this season. So I started my sermon by sharing a little bit about my grandpa. And you may have inferred from my story that my family hasn't always been a Christian family. In fact, as far as I know, I, I do a little bit of the ancestry stuff, try to figure out my genealogy. And as far as I know, I don't have any Christians, or we don't have any Christians on either side. And in at least recent generations, I'm sure there's some somewhere. But both of my parents, they grew up in broken homes and they were subject to, or to less than ideal childhoods, and that's putting it very lightly. It's not even stuff I could share up here, but the point is they had a, a tough go of it. And, and many of my family members, as amazing as they are, many of them have served time in prison. So like my grandpa wasn't the only one I visited in prison, right? This is a common thing. I've been around prisons growing up. And, and my family line going back as far as I can see has truly been in the kingdom of darkness, as we talked about a few weeks ago in our Mark series. If it wasn't for the grace of God, this would have been my story too. Like generation after generation after generation has lived in darkness. But thankfully, when I was three years old, the Lord actually used something that was terrible. He, he used a tragic accident where my mom broke her neck drinking and driving. He used that accident to bring my mom to the Lord uh, through the witnessing of a pastor's wife who just happened to step in at the right time and witness to her through that. She gave her life to Jesus, and shortly after, my dad gave his life to Jesus. So for me, all I've ever known is growing up in a house that is ruled by Jesus. And that doesn't mean we're perfect, but Jesus has been Lord. Yeah, so because of the grace of God, and because of that pastor's wife, because of my parents' decision, Jesus has always been a part of my life. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. So I don't know what brought you here this morning, but my deep desire for you, if I could like have anything for you this morning, I just want you to experience the grace of God. Like it is bigger than you realize. That God's grace is more outrageous than you realize. It's not like you are thinking he's too graceful. That's not the problem this morning. Like he is way more loving, way more good than you could ever imagine. You know, so maybe this morning you grew up in a Christian home, but you never have really made your faith your own. Like you've been around the church, but, but if you're honest, you haven't really let Jesus into your house, so to speak. You've kind of kept him at arm's distance and haven't let him be the leader of your life. And your faith isn't a faith that actually has led to change. This morning, I just want you to know there's grace for you. There's good news today. There is grace for you. All you gotta do is throw your trust in Jesus and he will do work on your heart. So that's the challenge. Just throw your trust in him and say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm letting you in. Or maybe you have no background in church. You know, maybe if this is new to you, like when we're singing and people are raising their hands, like, what is going on in here? This is weird. Are these people like in a trance? Like, like what's happening? You know, maybe this is all new to you. Maybe you don't understand all the language. Maybe you read the Bible. You're like, this makes no sense to me. 
But for some reason, in the midst of all the confusion and you're not really certain about things, in the midst of that, your heart is being stirred this morning. If that's you, I just believe that God wants to speak to you. You may be tempted to think that your family history or your past makes it where Christianity could not be for someone like you. But I'm here to tell you today that the grace of God is for you. Just as God can save Rahab or just as he saved Rahab, he can save you too. And not just that, just as God's grace changed Rahab, he can change you too. Because Jesus came to die for our sins and because he broke the barrier between Jew and Gentile, people like you and I can be a part of God's redemption story despite all of our weaknesses. Finally, maybe you're a Christian this morning, but you've been struggling with some sin. You're feeling some type of shame this morning. Maybe there's like this weight on you, like like you love Jesus, but the shame is like holding you back from, from really going all in because you feel like God's disappointed in you all the time. And this morning, you need to hear this, that, that God loves you. He's for you. You don't need to add anything to the cross. It's not like God's like, I'll save you or I'll die for you if you do all these things too. Like you gotta bring some stuff to add to the cross. No, the cross is enough for you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're struggling with. I don't care how bad you think it is. The cross is enough for you this morning. And that shame is from the devil. It's not from Jesus. That is from the devil. And this morning, Jesus wants to set you free by speaking truth. And the truth is this, by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not a result of your works. Come on. That's the truth this morning. I pray that that truth would set you free. The devil has you in chains, but Jesus wants to set you free today. His grace is for you. God's not surprised by your struggle. And he can both forgive you for that struggle and help you grow out of that struggle over time. And the last group I wanna speak to is if you are a Christian and honestly, you're not really struggling with any big sin, you're not really carrying shame, but honestly, you think a little too highly of yourself. That's, you're like, oh man. Or maybe you don't realize it because you're like, that would never be me because I'm amazing. But uh, if that's you, maybe you've been tempted to kind of look down on other people. Maybe you've been tempted to be self-righteous. I want to encourage you today that God's grace is for you as well and you still need it. I don't care how much you grow. I don't care how much you feel like you've achieved, you know, or morality or how far you've grown. You always need God's grace and God can forgive you today for your self-righteousness. God can help you to empathize with people who struggle with things that are different than what you struggle with once again. God can give you the grace to empathize with people. So God, he is calling us to give Jesus our hearts, just like Rahab did. He's not after perfection. He's after our willingness to go on a journey with him and progress into the person that he's called us to be. He's after our yes. He's not after our perfection. He's after our yes. That we can be a people who truly understand the grace of God that both saves and changes us. It can change everything in our lives. If we can get that the grace of God is for everyone, it's gonna help us forgive ourselves and also help us to have compassion for those around us. And if we can get that the grace of God doesn't only save us, but it changes us, it's gonna help us to not just fall into easy believism, that says that God doesn't care how we live. It's gonna help us not just to fall into, into religiosity where we're like, hey, what do I gotta do to get into heaven? But instead it's going to help us to have a faith that works not just on Sundays, but on Mondays through Saturdays. So the question this morning is, is can we be a people who are stirred to wonder by God's grace? That's the challenge. All right, stand up all across this room. We're gonna to pray to close here. So with that said, I just wanna give you a short practice here. If you wanna figure out how to apply this to your life, I think this is really practical to go home and take like a half hour this week, or maybe an hour to make a note of all the times that God has shown you grace, just to remind you that he loves you and also that you need his grace. Maybe if you're struggling with that self-righteousness, you need to see, wow, God showed me grace there, he showed me there. 
take that time this week to do that. All right, so I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna just sing one more song here. So if you wanna bow your heads and close your eyes, I just wanna pray that God would deposit grace into our hearts all across this room. So Jesus, this morning we come to you and we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for the wonder of your grace. God, I thank you for every single heart and soul that's in this room right now. God, I thank you that each person here, you knitted together in their mother's womb and you love them and you love me despite our flaws. God, I pray that that grace would just mess us up this Christmas season. I pray that this Christmas would not be like other Christmases, but instead it would be a season where we are just transformed and stirred to wonder at your love. So God, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' strong name we pray.